This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Chi Perlman about editing a design magazine, about how designing a conference is similar to editing a magazine, and about why most designers don't seem to shine at TED conferences. Probably because a lot of designers get very used to just clicking through their portfolio, and they think that that's what they do if they speak, and that's not actually going to work. Here's Debbie Millman. Malcolm Gladwell calls them connectors, the kind of people who seem to know everyone. In the world of design, I think it's safe to say that Chi Perlman is a super connector. Over the years, her multifarious career has put her in frequent contact with designers of all stripes. She began with ID Magazine, where she was editor-in-chief for seven years. She has since served on countless juries and boards. She's been deeply involved in the TED conference. On top of all that, she runs her own business, Chi Company, which produces content for conferences, magazines, films, books, exhibitions, award programs, and websites. She joins me today at the School of Visual Arts in New York City to talk about it all. Chi, welcome to Design Matters. Well, thank you, Debbie. Nice to be here. Chi, let's talk about your name. I never have met anyone else named Chi. Is that your formal name or a nickname? (laughs) It's, well, truth be told, it's my nom de guerre. It's not my actual given, born with name, um, which I will reveal to you if you are deeply interested in that. I am deeply, (laughs) deeply interested. I, 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 um, My legal name is Cynthia, and the thing that happens with that name is that it's Cindy, and nobody ever says Cynthia. It's sort of Cindy your whole life, and that became a nickname that that doesn't really make any sense, but I was called (laughs) Chi-Chi. Very sweet. And uh, that evolved um, to just being Chi, and and then at a certain point, in one's life, you can either stay with your childhood nickname or, you know, fess up and tell everyone what your real name is. It usually happens when you go away to college or you move or something like that. And I just kept it. I kept Chi. And I usually have to spell it, you know, C-H-E-E. People think it's Chinese Jewish. <laughs> but no, it, it, it's a childhood nickname. And for better or worse, it's it's kind of stuck with me. Well, it really suits you. And it's very memorable. Oh, thank you. So your LinkedIn profile states that you are an editor, a curator, and a design fairy godmother. <laughs> Why design fairy godmother? <laughs> well, it was one of my proudest moments, actually, when a young and not as well-known Cameron Sinclair dubbed me a design fairy godmother. And in fact, um, he and Kate Storr made me a business card (laughs) that said design fairy godmother. So I guess it just sort of is a, it's a way of saying that uh, I do a lot of wacky things. It's not really clear what it is. I don't have a sort of single track, as you mentioned in the intro, but I I think what I've tried to do is enrich people who are in this profession and try to enrich the profession along the way. And, you know, I've just done it with very different hats on. Did you know that you always wanted to be involved in design or was that something that 
developed later. Oh no, no, it was totally accident. <laughs> so how did how did it all begin <laughs> for you? Accidental. It began because I had pursued the idea that I would be an art historian, right? So, you know, is that what you went to college for? <laughs> yes, it is. So you come out with that, and there are a few interesting ways you can go with that. And I ended up going into very early on as an intern at an art magazine, a wonderful art magazine. Which one? It's called Portfolio Magazine, long gone. Uh, Worked there for a little while. From there, I um, took a job at the Metropolitan Museum, actually, in the publications office. And, you know, you dress up, go to the Metropolitan Museum. And it was one of my very first real jobs where I was really paid. I remember I got um, $11,000 a year. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Where did you live on $11,000 a year? I I had four roommates. Uh, (laughs) I lived on Sullivan Street in a uh, three-room, five-story walk-up, and uh, we had a bathtub in the kitchen. Oh, I know those (laughs) wonderful old apartments. I I lived on a fourth-floor walk-up. I did have a separate bathroom, but I did have to walk through my roommate's bedroom to get to mine and then to get back out again. So that was sometimes uncomfortable and somewhat (laughs) X-rated. Interesting times, right? (laughs) New York in the 70s and 80s. Exactly. (laughs) So how did you get from the Metropolitan Museum Publication Department to ID? Actually, it probably was driven out of a frustration. I I really was at the lowest, lowest level. I was typing letters. So my boss would write them out longhand on, you know, these big yellow pads. And I was such a miserable typist. And it really, at that point, you had to type perfectly because you're making these triplet copies with, um, you know, the couldn't make a mistake because if you made a mistake, you'd have to just, you know, fix each level. It was it was really it became with carbon tedious. paper. Yeah, that's how you'd make the paper. copies. Yes, and whiteout wouldn't go through to those other <laughs> copies. <laughs> it sounds like you remember this a little bit. <laughs> Mimeographing. Yeah, <laughs> and I was filing, and all these things. I, I really, I don't know why. I just sucked at them all. <laughs> I was not good at any of them. So I, I actually answered an ad, and um, it was in the New York Times, and it was for an editorial assistant at a magazine called Industrial Design Magazine. So I went there, you know, I was really a, a cub. I went there very young, and I just decided to go and do it. And because we were only three of us on the editorial staff. Who was your editor at when you first started? Was it Ralph Kaplan? No, Stephen Holt. Okay. Um, and Ralph was contributing. Those columns were just wonderful. Genius. They were just yeah. absolute genius. Yeah, spectacular. It was an interesting time because I I went there in the mid-80s and design was just picking up. It was just That was the moment. Yes. It was really emerging and emergent. You know, if you can imagine before there was a crate and barrel or, you know, before there was a real sensibility about design and, and it was easy and... Not even gratuitous to be a design cheerleader at that point because it was so wonderful what was going on. And ID Magazine was evolving very quickly. It started to understand that there are these different fields of design and different areas. And the concept of a magazine that could look at graphics and products and furniture design and interiors and retail and 
the emergence of the digital design realm was was all part of that magazine. And I think I was extraordinarily blessed and lucky. There's no better way to learn about a profession than what's called conducting your education in public. I was able to write a number of stories even before I became editor. So you became editor about halfway through your tenure. Um, And while you were editor, you relaunched the design publication. You increased circulation from 13,000 copies to 45,000 a month per issue. And you brought critical appreciation of design issues to audiences across many, many disciplines. Did you have the aspiration when you first started at ID that you eventually wanted to be at the helm? Um, Was it something that happened organically? Did you have to fight for the position? Tell us how you went from cub reporter to editor-in-chief. I I went in backwards. As I said, you know, I answered an ad in the New York Times and I ended up there in in this place where I really – I didn't even know what industrial design was when I got there. I had that seven years of training and sort of also kind of marching up the masthead slowly. But I had become senior editor and the magazine was sold and uh, the new owners, Andrew Kogan and his father, Marshall Kogan – And Andrew tapped me to become the editor. And I have to say it was something that I felt and knew I was deeply unprepared to do. (laughs) And I remember quite vividly not even knowing what to do, sort of like I couldn't even breathe. I couldn't quite figure out because I had been sort of blithely not involved in management. I had just been able to do content and I didn't have to think about the things that, you know, real managers have to do. But I think that because I had so much support from the new owners, it, and it wasn't even really, really financial support. It was really just they believed in the subject of design and they believed in relaunching the magazine. And I had a really fantastic team, including Bruce Mao. He, he redesigned the magazine yes, for you. Yeah, yeah. What made you decide to consider Bruce, aside from the fact that he's a brilliant designer, given that he hadn't designed magazines before, ever, what gave you the sense that he was the man for the job? Well, I mean, interestingly, I hadn't been an editor of the magazine before either, and the owners had never owned a design. I mean, we were all kind of quite novice in this and incredibly idealistic and optimistic. I mean, we started, when we first relaunched, we started with so many different contributors and columns and lots of complicated things. And, um, you know, to Bruce's credit, he really did break the rules. That was something he he's clearly inclined to do and uh, did not hesitate to do that. And I guess that's one of the nice things about doing something that you haven't done before. You don't always know what rules you shouldn't be breaking. I think that's very important. I mean, I think that that those are some of the lessons you learn when you haven't really ever done something before, how scary it can be and how you can really bring yourself in some organic way to something that maybe didn't exist before. In the course of your stewardship, the magazine won five national magazine awards. So clearly you were on to something that was really, really exciting. You won three for general excellence in 1995, 1997, and 1999, one for special interests in 2000, and one for design in 1997. That is staggering. 
Um, I want to talk to you about a few of the things that you covered. You did a cover story on the making of coffee cup lids, which turned out to be extremely complex. In doing my research on that piece, I read that you believed in recognizing anonymous design, things that are designed by seemingly nobody, and yet we live with every day. What made you decide to take that road? There was something about that that was very, to me, it was very moving, the sense of what we called everyday brilliance, um, or the sense of this grandeur of things that you so take for granted and are you know, almost nearly invisible or even disposable in our world. So the thing about something like the coffee cup lids, and, I, and I'll never forget when one of my great writers, Phil Patton, brought in this sort of dirty old paper sack full of them, and he said he'd just scrape them up off the floor of his car <laughs> and dump them on my desk. And we started looking at them together, and we said, you know, each one is so individual and different and unique and the why i mean why are there so many versions of the same and the complexities i mean i think there must have been sort of some kind of arms race about these coffee cup lids you know that's making them more and more elaborate and so when we started to peel that back and look at this as deep research deep design and and no one knows who works on this it's never been acknowledged or given an award, at least not the one that I've known. And we took it to a lot of different other categories as well. And, went, you know, like pills, like why do they have so many different kinds of shapes and designs and colors. colors and why? I mean, it's just so staggering and there's so many of them. And one of my favorite ones was um, pasta because pasta, they're engineered so differently. And we, we, we took it slightly tongue-in-cheek, but as a kind of an engineering story about engineering for different kinds of the perfect sauce. And we, we made up all these different um, categories of pasta design that were sort of like art historical, <laughs> like, like spaghetti modern was one of them, and uh, expressionism was another one, <laughs> arts and crafts for artisanal pasta. And at that time, really, no one had really given much thought to that. And it was one of my favorite things to do in that magazine, to kind of peel back and understand the context and the the depth of some of these kinds of things in our everyday life. So you mentioned that um, you couldn't believe how many versions there were of the same, the coffee lid. Why do you think as a species, as consumers, we are so intrigued by the many, many versions of things. And why do we covet those various versions? You mean, why do we have so much built-in obsolescence? <laughs> yes, yes. Why do we have 100 brands of nationally advertised water? And I think it's 113 versions of contact lens solution and all kinds of variety. Well, because for better or worse, because we can. I think that designers are never done. They're never satisfied. They never feel the office chair has just, you know, it's just not ever evolved as far as it could or might, or there may be some other next idea or innovation. Or, and don't forget, you know, 
materials and manufacturing are changing so much as well. The dynamism of these things is, is moving so quickly. It's not just capitalism, although, of course, that is driving everything. Of course, there's always got to be something new on the market. You know, I think that's sort of the hidden downside of what a lot of these kinds of designers are faced with. It's probably what makes product design the most relentless in a lot of ways because really, you know, how many new kinds of fill-in-the-blank do we really need? But consumers, you know, have a job to do, which is they do consume and we do seek the next and the new. I mean, I think your question is deeply sociological and complex and it's part of the richness of the world around us. It's part of, it's almost evolution. You know, why is evolution so complex? I recently was at a very large food company and visited their kitchens where they actually have food scientists. And part of what they were investigating that afternoon was the mouth feel of something that they were creating. And my guess is that the reason that there are also so many different types of pastas and pasta shapes is because of the different way they feel in your mouth. A, a macaroni might taste very different than a tagliatelle. <laughs> so, and I kind of like that. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that you say that because you know who was obsessed with this is Tibor Kalman. Yes. And uh, he actually wrote a story for me once called Snackitecture. <laughs> where he examined all these different kinds of snacks and he was obsessed. He would love to have your job because he always wanted to know how do they come up with these wackadoodle things, you know, and it's like, how do you design combos or, you know, what do you, what do you, you know, this whole, this mouthfeel and all this stuff. It's like, he was obsessed with that kind of um, top secret design because, of course, no one can Ever really yeah, it's hard to secrets. get into those food kitchens. <laughs> <laughs> um, somebody that I think has done really remarkable work with pasta is somebody that you recently interviewed at the last AIGA conference, and that's Marion Banshees, who did that fantastic visual essay completely made with borders that she created out of pasta, which was kind of something we do in camp when we were, you know, eight. But somehow she's elevated it to this gorgeous art form. She's such a genius, too, and she's so fearless about that, too. She's so fearless about just being out in the love of of decoration, of the decorative, you know, and, and, and she elevates it so much, too. I mean, it sounds trivial to say that, but I respect her so much, and her, her creative, I mean, her mind is just amazing. So at the same time you're winning all of these magazine, national magazine awards, you're also beginning to do a lot of new, really cool things at the very same time. Awards programs, conferences, more writing. Um, beginning in 1992, you were the founder and co-chair of the Chrysler Design Awards, which you ended up doing for 10 years. The program recognized excellence in innovation in architecture, landscape architecture, product, graphic, and digital design. Um, and you named six winners every year. How and why did you start the Chrysler Design Awards, and how were they chosen? It was such a wonderful match that they had. I mean, it, it, you know, sometimes these, you look back on these things and you say, how did that ever happen? How did a large American corporation 
with gazillions of people who are mostly focused on the bottom line? And how did they ever have the vision to do something like that? I take no credit for the idea. It was completely theirs. And they came to me and they wanted to have two chairs. So actually, I founded that program with Michael Sorkin. And we were the co-chairs for the first half of the program. He and I put together this idea that in some ways mirrored what I had been thinking about a lot before, which is to honor those people who are in the different disciplines, but for whatever reason, they're really – I mean, they were were very comfortable with the notion that we would not be recognizing their own industry. It was not for car designers. It was for people doing things that might inspire, move the needle a little bit in, in terms of the other professions. So what they came up with was that we gave out six awards a year. Each of our winners got $10,000, which was, you know, real money. Yeah, that's that's real money. (laughs) And they were given this honor and this recognition. And it was a a jury process that looked a little bit like what the Cooper Hewitt Design Awards look like now. In fact, I know that the Cooper Hewitt Design Awards looked very closely at the Chrysler Design Awards to understand the format and – the types of awards that were being given out. It ran for 10 years, and in the very last year of the Chrysler Design Award, we did something that I'm very proud of, which was we decided to give that year the awards to the people who had championed design, not the designers. So the people who had made design possible or had somehow elevated the profession. And I remember... The winners that year ranged from Mickey Friedman, the great curator from Walker, all the way to Steve Jobs. So it was, you know, it was a kind of a moment to recognize the people who, you know, maybe it wasn't always the easiest thing for them or it wasn't the most intuitive thing for them. Well, having this role as the arbiter or the decider, the chooser, really puts an awful lot of responsibility on you in terms of introducing people into a whole discipline that they might not be aware of and then guiding them through the benchmarks and guiding them through the way in which people are making a difference with this discipline. And you did that at ID as well. You you brought back the annual ID40, which ranked designers who were the most influential people working in global design. You've also judged the James Beard Design Award, and you founded the Curry Stone Design Prize, which grants $150,000 annually to architects and designers addressing critical social needs. How do you go about determining what is considered important, meaningful, timeless? How do you, how do you make those decisions? Well, I would say that those decisions can't be made by any single person. And it's one of the reasons that what's really important to me is to build a jury to analyze and to bring different points of view. I would not feel comfortable making some unilateral decision and say, okay, yes, you're anointed and you're not. But, but you could. Conceivably, you could. I mean, <laughs> well, you're, as you're educated magazine, enough. Yes. You're, you're, you're certainly experienced enough to be able to do that. Sure. Clearly, you're asked to do I'm, like I'm, on, I'm on many, many jurors. And as a magazine editor, you are sort of an arbiter. But if I'm working for an organization, whether it's the Chrysler Design Awards or for the Curry Stone Design Awards, I have a team around me and we want to have the most 
informed and knowledgeable kinds of decision making. So we would always bring in a jury to to really look at what kinds of things are going on across the field. And the po- important thing about that is you always change the jury so that you're not just sort of following your own tail. You have to have a lot of different people who are out there with different experiences that can inform a conversation in a jury. And I know you've been on many juries yourself. It's so organic the way the discussion moves and the way it evolves and the kinds of things, the issues that you really wrestle with when you're on a jury. You come to an understanding of what's the right thing to do at that time and in that place and for whoever that winner is. But it's very imperfect, and and I would never say it's a science. It's certainly not. I want to talk with you a bit about the conferences that you've helped create. You've been a program director for the Art Center of Design Conference. You did that for five years, and the conference was a a three-day cross-disciplinary design experience. You looked at investigating a theme with really unexpected presenters. And again, there's this common denominator of unexpected, unpredictable teaching, learning, stretching. And I also want to talk to you about the work that you've done with the TED conference. But Business Week covered your Radical Craft conference and reported on your exclusive interview with Apple Executive Vice President of Design, Johnny Ive, who famously does not give any interviews, is very rarely in the press as a first person, um, and you somehow managed to interview him. So I want to read what Business Week said about it. Um, the 39-year-old Brit slouched unfabulously in his seat and quietly answered questions from conference host and award-winning editor Chi Perlman. Despite countless invitations, he refused to trumpet his own design prowess or to dish on what it's like to work with his perfectionist boss, Steve Jobs. I've admitted he wasn't cut out to be a design consultant where salesmanship is the most essential skill. I was just terrible at running a design business, and I really wanted to just focus on the craft of design, he told Perlman. How do you go about having a conversation with somebody like Johnny Ive? Were you terrified? I mean, I was terrified before our interview today, and, and I can't even imagine being on the world stage with Johnny Ive. You would be brilliant at interviewing Johnny Ive. <laughs> I would like to see that happen. I don't know him well, but there's a comfort level between us. And, you know, I, every once in a while I'll send him an email or I'll, something will come up and I'll just, you know, have a little quick chat with him. But when I asked him to come to this conference, I said, you don't have to do anything. You know, we'll just sit and have a conversation. You know, and mostly I wouldn't let anyone do that. I would make them get up there and, you know, write their damn speech. And, you know, but I didn't do that with him. I just said, well, we'll just chat and we'll have a conversation. And and he's um, probably the best way to describe it. He's painfully shy. He's very, very shy. And he was very nervous before going on. And, you know, I kept it fairly brief. I had I think I'd only scheduled about 20 minutes for this interview. And the room was so silent and he was so passionate about describing things. He can talk about his work in a way because, of course, he's muzzled. He can't talk about anything to do with the corporate or anything. But he can talk about his work in a way you've never really quite seen that kind of level of passion. 
the room was absolutely dead silent. And we actually ran over to 40 minutes in this conversation. Surprised. <laughs> and I, we were wrapping it up. And I said, okay, well, you're done now. We're, and he said, really? It's over? <laughs> it's like he was really, he could have happily stayed there talking for hours because my sense is he doesn't get a chance to do that very much because he's inside this corporate you know, firewall. Where can people see the video? Because I was not able to find anything but the description. We, you know what? And the coverage. Apple wouldn't let us post it. Oh. I know. I have a bootleg. <laughs> <laughs> hmm, let's talk after the show. Um, and then there's Ted. Uh, you have been guest curating with David Rockwell, the design studio at TED. What was that about? We were invited by Chris Anderson, who's the curator of TED, to do one session. So TED is built in these building blocks of sessions. They're each 105 minutes. So Chris kind of handed us the reins for 105 minutes. And so said, you pick you know, the people speaking at the yes. TED conference. So we, 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 wow. we were given that platform. We had breakfast with Chris. It was a spring morning and we did not see him again or talk to him again until just like just before the conference. It was really... So he trusted he really, you that he deeply. He really handed us... I think he was just really busy. <laughs> but uh, so that was great for us. Here's the thing. TED stands for Technology, Entertainment, and Design. And uh, Ricky Werman had built this brand and this whole concept. And it's really a genius construct, the way you think about the experience, the whole thing. You know, I had kind of grown up going to TED. I had gone because Ricky Warman, he arm-twisted me in his way, saying, you have to come, you have to come. And I, you know, so I did. And, and he's I, the founder of TED. And he's the founder. So I went to his version of TED for many, many years, since 95 or something like that. And then Chris took over and Chris um, kind of folded me in to something called the Brain Trust because he he knew I'd been going for a long time and he also knew that I had done my own series of conferences. In fact, he came to one of my conferences, so he saw that I had done some of these kinds of things and he, you know, very generously brought me on board as consultant and, and advisor informally to him. This session with David, though, I mean, David and I have worked on a number of things together and this was one of the great moments for us because... I really adore um, putting together the sort of live experience. It draws from magazines and it feels like a magazine in terms of pacing and what happens, but it's live. So it's this live content that you can deliver over this period of time. And, you know, you have to think very carefully about every minute of it. What's going to happen? What are you going to do? What surprises are going to happen? He says, I love making conferences. It's so, so... It's theater. Yeah, it's so entertaining for me. So with 105 minutes, of course, we had to really figure out what exactly to do. And we had some great speakers and we worked closely with them. Um, yeah, I Chip, want to talk to you about Chip that. Chip Kid was like <laughs> off the charts, off the charts. I mean, just fabulous. But so was Elizabeth Diller and John Hockenberry. And we had Thomas Campbell, who's the director of the Metropolitan Museum. And... Um, one of my great joys was having John Hodgman come, and he he just is so brilliant. And I asked him to do one thing. I said, would you just go up? I'm going to give you these little two-minute segments, and I'm going to give you this little thing. And 
I want you to explain design to me. Here's the Philippe Stark orange juicer. You explain it. And of course, he just went crazy. I mean, you know, he, he, he had so many narratives and made up crazy things that he could come up with. So he, you know, I, I highly advise go to TED.com and watch it. Um, Helen Waters asked a rather provocative question to you in an interview on the TED website. She wondered if it was true that designers make the least exciting speakers at TED. Why would she think that? And I have so much respect for Helen. I think she's absolutely brilliant. But I couldn't believe that she would think that they were the least exciting speakers. Well, see, you and I would be shocked to think that anyone would ever imagine that. But the D in TED is, sadly, it's the weakest. Why? Why? (laughs) We're the most interesting. (laughs) Um, Why? Well, Probably because a lot of designers get very used to just clicking through their portfolio and they think that that's what they do if they speak. And that's not going to actually deliver it, Ted. That's not actually going to work. You have to build a story. You have to build an arc. You have 12 minutes and you have to really put it together and tell the story. But to your point, Ted has a very high bar and it may be that designers are visual or designers don't know how to tell a story that well, or maybe that's the perception that they have at TED. And I've, I've worked closely with TED to try to bring in more designers. I, I read that you stated that most presenters are often in abject terror, and that last year one speaker suggested that they ought to have a toilet on stage for all the people who get sick before their talk. <laughs> oh, But you've been called a TED whisperer, um, (laughs) helping people prepare for a TED talk. How do you go about doing that? Well, you can help people a lot by just holding their hand. Truly. All of us, when we try to write our own talk, our own speech, you know, we tend to get too complicated and we elaborate and we, you know, we lose track. And if I sit with someone who is trying to give a talk, I think I can make their lives much easier just by streamlining it with them, just pulling it back, just say, what do you really want to say? And can you do that in a way that doesn't sound like you're writing a, you know, a term paper or something like that? So how do you edit people? How did you get Chip to deliver his TED Talk in, was it 12 minutes or 18 minutes? I think we only gave him 12 because we had so many things going on in that session. But we had many rehearsals. We went over it. He actually wrote it. It was a written piece. And then we would go through it. And as I hear it, I say, you don't need that. Or can you change that? Or what do you mean by that? Or let's do that differently or, you know, sometimes. I feel like the director, really. You're more than a whisperer. <laughs> I, I'm i a coach for, for those kinds of talks. I, I, I've heard them enough myself and I can help coach somebody to be on that stage. So do you think that there's an actual sort of arc to a typical TED talk? Is there sort of likable hero overcoming some obstacle and then some big redemption and lesson learned? I mean, is that the way that... Do you see it that way or is it just everybody has their own story that you help reveal? I don't think that there is one way to give a TED Talk. It's a new form of communication. It's being developed, you know, and iterated and figured out. And lots of people are trying different ways of doing this. But there are certain universal things that you can say, which is you have to connect to your audience and you have to let them know that you're real. 
if you have some vulnerability, you don't try to mask that and cover it up. You have to deliver who you really are. An audience can tell in a second if someone is up there with a with an act, you know, and if they're just doing a performance or a number or something on you. I mean, there are a lot of things about the TED Talk that some, you know, not all of them are good because as the bar gets higher, people feel like they have to perform more and rehearse more. And, you know, it's not nearly as extemporaneous as it used to be. And there's good and bad to that. I mean, it's it's not always good that someone isn't just rambling around. On the other hand, they're not rambling around. And, you know, they're they're very, very respectful of your time as an audience and keenly aware that they need to land and deliver on time. And I would say it's probably the first 30 seconds and one minute to one minute and the last one minute that are usually the most powerful parts of a TED Talk. Wow, it'd be interesting to see your notes deconstructing during a rehearsal. <laughs> so, Chi, the last question I have for you is about a project you are in the midst of right now. Uh, you are guest curating the first retrospective of the groundbreaking fashion designer Isaac Mizrahi, one of my all-time favorite fashion designers, at the Jewish Museum opening in the spring of 2016. So tell us about what that is like and what you are planning well, first of all, I've never worked on a project that is so slow. <laughs> <laughs> that is really quite a long time away. It's like yes, a wedding. It is. It's, it's a two-and-a-half-year engagement for a catalog and this exhibition. And what's really exciting about it for me is is Isaac. I mean, I love Isaac. He has real depth, cultural depth, and he's got a reference and a bear trap mind for arts and culture, and he's very engaged in our world in that way. There's never been an exhibition of his work, which has meant that we have gone into sort of a clean slate. We've gone into the archive. He has kept many things, which has been really wonderful. Along the way on this journey, of course, I can admit to you, I don't really know that much about fashion. I just really don't. I mean, I, I had to look up what a boucle suit means because I didn't know what it meant. So I, now I know what it means. But, but there are many things that I'm learning on this too. And, and what we were talking about earlier about trying out things that you really don't know anything about has been this experience for me too, because I have stepped into a world that's much more complex and rich and, nuanced than I realize. And I've really learned a lot about someone who, you know, fashion designer is one way to say, it, but this is an art form. This is such a, an artistry. And the way he has approached it is such an art form. And it's, it's such a convergence of thinking about style and culture and materials and performance. You know, there's so many different levels and layers that go into designing clothing. And that's been such an eye-opener for me, not to mention it's made me totally self-conscious about my wardrobe, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's fun. Then you can remake it, right? <laughs> no, actually, the best thing to do in these situations is just to wear black jeans, you know, just like that's the safest thing to do. Chi, <laughs> thank you so much for really elevating the awareness, the conversation, and the possibilities for design and all the work that you do. And thank you for being on Design Matters today. Well, I want to say thank you, Debbie, because this is such an incredible gift. And I want, I want to tell the world that this is something that is 
it's a gift to this whole profession that that wouldn't exist without you and i'm just so grateful to you for doing this it really this really matters well thank you <laughs> thank you thank you thank you it means a lot to find out more about Chi Perlman, visit her website, chicompany.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. 